1: Hello and welcome to the World in 10, all the big stories globally brought to you with unique insight and analysis from the Times of London. I'm Sonal Patel. And I'm Bhavani Vadi. Coming up, one of
0: the world's best known broadcasters hits crisis mode after serious allegations
1: against one of its top stars. Also the Lithuanian president calls Putin a gambler in the Times exclusive. And on a lighter note, fancy a dip in the Sen? No, me either but there's a map of the best spots if you do.
0: Next to a story that's been
1: top of the agenda in the Times newsroom over the last few days. A lot of talk about this in the editorial meeting we were in this morning because it's a scandal involving one of the world's best-known broadcasters, the BBC. It's all over allegations that one of its star presenters paid a teenager tens of thousands of dollars for explicit photographs. Yeah, and at the time of this
0: recording, we're still in this very strange situation of not knowing who it is, with journalists and media lawyers tussling over privacy laws on whether
1: he can be named. And that's led to its own problems, really. Gossip loves nothing better than a void. And that means people are speculating quite openly on social media. Here's The Times media correspondent, Alex Faber.
0: There is a relatively small pool of high-profile BBC male presenters. And as increasing numbers of those individuals rule themselves out, the potential uh individual who this could be referring to become it becomes smaller and, and this is where you know social media butts up against privacy laws and whilst none of the none of the press um has been or, or the broadcasters have been have been naming naming the individual users feel emboldened to They've yeah. always said that they're not responsible for the content on their platform. If they do accept liability, that takes them down a whole different route of regulation and and legalities. And that's mm. not a place that the platforms, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, have ever wanted to go down. Yes, this has led to a number of high profile male BBC presenters seeking legal action against those who've been accusing them online. And pressure continues to mount on the public broadcaster over its handling of the claims.
1: Next, to a Times exclusive, with this man, Gitanas Nauseda.
2: Putin is a gambler. Mm. And all the threats he makes are not because he's
0: strong, but because he feels weak.
1: He's the Lithuanian president. Lithuania, of course, hosting a crucial NATO summit, which starts tomorrow. Crucial because the thorny issue of what to do about Russia will no doubt be the big talking point tomorrow when it starts. And it's not often you get world leaders being quite so, I guess, candid. And now Seda isn't the only one putting pressure on other countries to abandon this idea that was around since the end of the Cold War in the 90s, when Russia was no longer regarded as an adversary. Oliver Moody's the Times-Berlin correspondent. He's in
2: Vilnius for the summit and interviewed the president. Oh, Probably The most interesting thing he had to say was about a fairly obscure treaty between NATO and Russia that was signed in in 1997. And one of the provisions of that treaty is NATO's commitment not to put any permanent bases uh, basically east of Germany. President Nalceda was arguing that this act is basically dead.
1: How big a move would it be for there to be permanent bases
2: along Russia's border it would be a big move. NATO already has units stationed in nine states across its eastern flank, places like Poland, the Baltic states, but they're rotational. So once every six months or so, the the units have to be called home. And what we're seeing now with this Vilnius summit is a shift towards a much more kind of substantial and hopefully credible idea of deterrence. And the most fascinating development was when the German defence minister went to Lithuania, where Germany is the main country running the NATO battle group, and announced that Germany would permanently station a full brigade, which is about 4,000 troops, in Lithuania, which would be an, an absolutely huge symbolic shift and, and a kind of de facto recognition that the provisions of this treaty that have bound NATO's hands for the past 25 years are, 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 are no longer really applicable.
0: Of course, Joe Biden's in the UK, ahead of the NATO summit. Now you can hear the clamour of the world's press outside Downing Street, where he's been meeting the British PM, Rishi Sunak. Good to be back.
2: Couldn't be meeting with a closer friend.
0: You can hear the president there keen to emphasise the strength of the relationship between the two countries. Both are keen to show a united front against a more
1: palpable Russian threat. And staying with Russia, there's a really fascinating interview with Lord George Robinson, who's a former NATO Secretary General on our sister pod, Stories of Our Times. And now, having met Vladimir Putin a number of times, he has incredible insight into the Russian president and his thinking. Um, It's just brilliant access to an important geopolitical figure. Uh, Check out Stories of Our Times wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Let's talk tennis now. And Wimbledon, a bit of a problem. Lots of players seem to be getting quite
1: eight about the scheduling of matches. Yeah, I watched a live Wimbledon match featuring Andy Murray and Stefano Sitsipas at around 10.30 at night, which felt... Really very odd. Um, So because there's an 11pm curfew, some matches, like Murray's, which were scheduled last, are being played over two days, which really isn't ideal for some players.
0: No, not ideal for some, although Wimbledon denies it publicly. It's understood it's partly been done to keep the main broadcaster, the BBC, happy, as it means they get more tennis to show at prime time. But the Times tennis correspondent Stuart Fraser says it's left players feeling like a bit of an
2: afterthought. If you have that curfew, then starting three matches at 130 runs the risk of problems later on. They've been lucky a couple of nights where matches towards the end of the day have been relatively quick so they got it finished in time. But on two of the first seven days, play has been suspended. And both of these matches involved two of the biggest draws in the men's tournament, Andy Murray and Novak Djokovic.
1: Now to Paris. Now, how do you like the sound of splashing about in the Seine, Sonal? No, I don't at all. Uh, It it looks revolting.
0: But it's going to get a clean-up. The river running through the City of Love is getting spruced up
1: ahead of the Olympics, would you fancy it then? Uh, No, still no, <laughs> still no. Uh, swimming will be allowed again in the Seine hundreds of years after it was banned because for the very reasons I don't want to go in, uh, it was so polluted. The Times Paris correspondent Adam Sage explains why it's happening.
2: This is follows a, a, a massive cleanup of the Seine that's costing about 1.4 billion euros um, that's been spurred by the Olympic Games Uh, where there are going to be three uh, swimming events in the river. Um, That was part of Paris's pledge to the uh, Olympic Committee. Um, When they got the Games, they had to clean the river up so that people could swim in it for the Olympics and they're saying they're going to carry on the clean up and go ahead with it so that ordinary people will be able to swim uh, after the Olympics.
0: I'm in the heart of the Times newsroom with the Assistant Foreign Editor David Rose. What have you got coming up of note?
1: Uh, well, we're covering uh, new archaeological finds at the site of the Battle of Waterloo in tomorrow's paper, including new evidence of trenches used by Napoleon's army in the initial stages of the fighting. Uh, a team of British archaeologists are working with uh, military veterans, including some from Ukraine for the first time, and they've uncovered covered some potentially uh, very new features of the battlefield that we didn't know uh, existed before. And finally, our favourite film critic. Of course he is. He works for The Times, for heaven's sake. Uh, Kevin Maher is at it again. Apparently, he's the only one who thinks the new Mission Impossible film is, in his words, pretty awful. He's quite damning about it. Uh, he reckons statistically that cannot be possible, that at least one other person must agree with him. I think that's your challenge should you wish to accept it. Read Kevin's article in The Times. Absolutely, that is well worth getting out a subscription
0: for. And that's it from us from the World in 10 team. We're back tomorrow.